Good morning and welcome to Spin Class. We're talking politics. Your host, Michael Fragan, here on the Nachum Siegel Network, NachumSiegel.com, and on the NSN app, are heard around the world. And I'm pleased to welcome back a frequent guest, although not so frequent as of late, Tevi Troy, a best-selling presidential historian, a senior fellow at the Bipartisan Policy Center, a former deputy secretary of health and human services, and the book, latest book, Fight House Rivalries in the White House from Truman, Truman to Trump, named as one of 2020's top political books by the Wall Street Journal. And it is an excellent book, actually. Um, other books like Shall We Wake the President. These are all kinds of really, if you enjoy the nitty gritty of government and politics. Uh, we are here to talk this morning about a the most recent article that he wrote in Commentary Magazine, Ed Koch. 10 years gone, because if you're a New Yorker and you love politics or your combination of both, you you miss Ed Koch to, uh, to a large degree because they that larger than life Jewish persona in particular that Tevi has, I think, captured very well. But first, Tevi, I'm going to abuse you a little bit to talk about the matter at hand right now that is ensnaring both former President Trump, current President Biden, and now former Vice President Mike Pence, which is classified documents. And why is it seem to be that everybody seems to have them in the wrong place? And of course, they didn't even know about it. So, Tevi, welcome to Spin Class. And there's your first question. Great. Thanks for having me. I would say that I'm a frequent, if not recent guest. Let's put it that way. The classified document thing just is bizarre to me. I had a very high security clearance when I was Deputy Secretary of HHS. I had access to classified documents. I was never in a position where I could even take them out of a room. So I don't understand how they left the, what's called the skiff, which is these secure rooms where you, you can't have a phone in there. You, they're, um, they, you, they can't be bugged, supposedly. And, and you're not supposed to take the classified documents out of them. So I, I just don't even understand how this thing starts. The Hillary is a different thing because, look, I remember when I was in the White House, Karl Rove had two different Blackberries, one for political work and more personal stuff, and then one for his official government business. And so I can understand getting your emails confused. Not that I'm excusing her behavior, but that one, I understand how it happens. These other ones, I don't even understand how it happens. Uh, but apparently the rules for elected officials seem to be different than those for political appointees, which I guess I also think is wrong. The, um, the way the Justice Department and the FBI prosecute abuses of classified material by people who are not elected officials is, is quite strict. I mean, they go after people, people go to jail, people lose their livelihoods. So I, I don't understand why these elected officials seem to have an easier way of getting classified documents out of the secure settings. And I don't understand why there seems to be the sense that, oh, well, maybe they can skate free, but uh, you know, some Marine sergeant who took a classified document to the bathroom with him, he has to go to jail. But I guess give the public an understanding because I, I know that there's a lot of coverage about this. Right. But you're you've been in addition to being a deputy secretary, which puts you as a boss, if you will, in your organization. You're also a staffer in the White House. And let's just say, for example, the vice president at the time, Joe Biden, or the vice president at the time, Mike Pence, says to you, can you bring these documents home for me or bring them or put them in my briefcase or whatever it is? You listen, you don't listen. How, how does that I'm just trying to think in context. You've also wrote about the way the staff works in the White House. I mean, to what extent do you have to listen 
to what they're telling you? Or do you have to tell your boss who's therefore they're going to report to their boss, who is the big boss, who's the guy who's asking you? I mean, isn't it possible that that there's White House staff that's just listening to what they're being told and putting these documents and, you know, in the car? I think you characterize that pretty well, Michael. That That is exactly something that is a dynamic in Washington. People want to kiss up to the boss. They want to please the principal. Sure. But at the same time, the rules on classified documents are pretty strict. You know, I'm not sure that the staffer you describe, right, the person who carries the president's briefcase has necessarily has the um, has the classification level, has the security clearance that, that we're talking about where they'd be even able into the room. They might be sitting outside the room. Um, and then so I don't know how the president or vice president takes the document out of the room to give it to that person. Now, I understand you know, Trump, it was a bit of more of a loosey-goosey White House and Trump would say, I declassify this, I, you know, touching it with his scepter or whatever. So maybe they didn't t- take the rules about classification as seriously. Um, but I can't imagine that was the case when Biden was vice president. But then and also this seemed to happen when Biden was senator with some suggestions that maybe he was reading these documents on the Amtrak home because he remember he went home to Delaware every night. So. The, the whole thing is, is bizarre to me. I don't understand how it happens. I don't understand why some people are prosecuted more strictly. And I also don't understand why so many documents are classified. I mean, sometimes you'll see the president's public schedule is a classified document. It doesn't need to be. Sometimes you'll see an article in the New York Times is a classified document. It was in the New York Times. So the, uh, the classification rules are overly broad. And I think we do need some reform on them. Uh, maybe this incident where we now have people on both sides of the aisle who've run afoul of them, uh, could be a spur to get this going. Uh, and you know, I always find the, the Democrats' arguments on this very interesting. It's that you know Trump did it and Biden did it, but Trump is bad and Biden's good. So, of course, he didn't have negative intentions when he did it, and Trump, because he's bad, must have had negative intentions. Look, you can't mess with classified documents, whether you're good or bad, and, uh, and, and, and I think we just need to shut the door on this. Okay, so I... I, I think that this is uh, getting into the overclassification thing, which I keep hearing is is certainly a big issue. It's not an issue for us, not an issue for today. So I want to segue into uh, our protagonist of, of today's story, which is Ed Koch, the ubiquitous, uh, uh, sui generis uh, New York City mayor. And from 1977, to, I think, till 1991. Uh, and, you know, you, you write about him in 2023, 10 years gone. So what is it about Ed Koch that you, as a former New Yorker, found so compelling to write about? Well, I think you used two perfect words for him, ubiquitous and sui generis. Ubiquitous meaning being everywhere all at once. And Koch, in an era before the Internet, before social media, before really even widespread cable television, he was everywhere in New York. There was a Broadway play about him. He was on TV. He was doing ads. He was standing at the Brooklyn Bridge when there was a strike telling people, how am I doing? How am I doing? I mean, you could not get away from Ed Koch. There was a water shortage, and he went on TV telling people not to flush the toilet too much and only flush it if it was number two, not number one. I mean, he, you could not get away from Ed Koch in uh, in those, those 12 years, uh, 77 to 89 is when he, he was mayor. Um, the second one is Stewie Generous. He was a unique character. He was a, a kind of a, a New Yorker of a bygone era, um, a um, sort of Manhattan-loving ethnic who um, kind of embraced all the diversity of New York without getting caught up in the craziness of diversity, meaning that you favor some people above others. He wanted everybody treated equally. Um, and then also the other thing to mention about him is his Jewishness. I mean, he wasn't a religious person by any means. He reveled in eating non-kosher. Uh, but when he died, he said he wanted on his tombstone the words that Daniel Pearl, who was slaughtered 
by um, al-Qaeda terrorists uh, for being a Jew. And the, and the words on the tombstone are, I am Jewish, my father was Jewish, my mother was Jewish. So uh, a, a very unique, special New York guy uh, who really kind of reveled in political combat. We talked about political combat earlier. And the, the point of my piece and commentary is to look at some of the many feuds that Ed Koch had. And now 10 years later, at 10 years after he died, he died February 1st, 2013, we can look at the people he feuded with and see that Koch's historical reputation should be going up, while a lot of these people, their historical reputations have clearly gone down. So give some context for the people, and you as a historian. How did Ed Koch come to be mayor of New York City? Uh, you know, a weekly, you know, Jewish guy, but, you know, a bachelor. Um, we'll, we'll leave that. So it's uh, unusual, uh, you know, to some degree. There were some other prominent Jewish um uh, politicians who may have had, you know, in the pecking order ahead of him. He had a longstanding feud with Mario Cuomo, who became governor, who ran against him. You know, for mayor, there was all kinds of things. You know, where does Ed Koch come from? So for those that don't remember, yes, so, he was so a congressman. Or where yeah, does he come from? Very, right. He's a congressman from Greenwich Village. Um, he kind of defeated an old waspy Republican to get the job. To begin with, and he did it by outworking him. And the, the Waspy guy had three names, and so Koch said, "I want him to remember that the guy with two names beat the guy with three names." Uh, so uh, Koch has this job. Uh, he's got some flair to him, so he, he gets attention. And then in 1977, there's this titanic, massive, six-way Democratic primary for to to um, to take on the, for the job of mayor. Uh, and Abe Beam is the incumbent mayor. He's one of the six. But you also have Ed Koch, who kind of also Jewish, the, I should say, right? But but he's more like a, a Reagan Democrat. There's Bella Abzug, who's also Jewish, and she represents the far left. There's Herman Bedillo, who's the Hispanic candidate. There's Percy Sutton, who's the black candidate, and then and then you've got uh, Mario Cuomo, whom you already mentioned, who's Italian, but he's not really the urban ethnic that Koch is because he's he's so liberal. Um, and you say longstanding feud. I mean, the feud really exploded as a result of this 1977 primary. I mean, you kind of gently say that Koch was a bachelor. He was rumored to be gay and Koch and Cuomo's people put the word out. They had this horrific uh, little ditty about Koch that I'm not even going to repeat. But Koch was very angry about this ditty that, that uh, the Cuomo people put out for the rest of his life. And so these six people, all big names in New York City politics, are all running in this primary. And all of them get between 10 and 20% of the vote. I mean, that, that's astounding. I've never seen an election like that before or since. And Koch barely edges out Cuomo for the number one slot. Cuomo has the number two slot. Uh, but that's not the end of it, because then they go into runoff, because nobody has close to 50%. Koch then beats Cuomo in the runoff. And then Cuomo runs on the liberal ticket. So, you know, we've got a Democrat nominee. And Cuomo says, well, I'm going to challenge you again on the liberal side. And so obviously the Republican doesn't, doesn't have much say. Uh, Beam is knocked out in that first round. And the first Democratic incumbent to lose in a primary in 60 years. And so Koch runs against Cuomo a third time, beats him a third time, and he becomes mayor. And he just loves the idea of being mayor. As I said earlier, he's everywhere at the time. But the feud with Cuomo is not over because Cuomo becomes lieutenant governor and then he runs against Koch for governor in 1982. A lot of people said that Koch didn't really want to be governor, but maybe he wanted to be Cuomo. Maybe he thought it was a bigger role. Um, and Cuomo beats Koch in that race, in large part because of Koch's own mouth. Koch loves New York City so much that he keeps denigrating the suburbs 
and upstate and people who, and Albany, the places where the place where he'd have to live. And um, Katja's own mouth really defeats him. And then there was also some sense, and I mentioned this in the commentary article, that New Yorkers didn't give Koch that huge a margin, even though they had made him mayor, because they wanted to keep him as mayor. And that was certainly Koch's spin on things afterwards. So Koch was one of these, uh, you know, what did he call himself? A liberal with sanity, like afterward. The common sense liberal. This kind of thing that's in New York is kind of making a comeback because the many Democrats have gone so far progressive or to the left, uh, he had this famous line that's quoted all the time in politics. If you agree with me on nine of, out of 12 issues, vote for me. If you agree with me on 12 out of 12 issues, see a psychiatrist. And in today's <laughs> politics, right, it's like totally off because you have to agree with everybody 100% of the time. So just where does a guy like Ed Koch, he doesn't really fit into any box, uh, you know, he he endorsed Republicans afterward. He was free. I mean, he famously um, was, you know, flipped. I mean, he's given credit for flipping in the aftermath of Anthony Weiner's uh, resignation in 2009. After he was long out of office, he was given credit for flipping a Democratic congressional seat away from another feud, away from the Weprin family, from David Weprin, who he had a famous feud with uh, that. Uh, and then flipping it towards a Republican, Bob Turner. So Ed Koch really doesn't fit neatly politically into anywhere. And, you know, it's weird in a in the New York that we know today, which is so blue, which is so Democrat, which is everything. You know, where does, you know, how does Ed Koch maintain for three terms his ability to navigate that treacher, treacherous political pigeonholing? Yeah, well, I would slightly disagree and say that he doesn't fit in anywhere. He fits in firmly with the sense of the Reagan Democrats, right? The urban ethnics who would have hated woke. So he was pre-Reagan, but he was pre-Reagan, right? He's 77. He was like... uh, He's pre-Reagan, but but there was already this sense that there was this urban ethnic revolt against the excesses of liberalism, against the sense that uh, the liberals don't want to put people in jail, against the liberals want to force busing on people. So Koch was a liberal in terms of Let's say he was uh, pro-abortion, for example, and he was okay with social spending, but he didn't like the cultural liberalism in your face, the try to imposition of your values on everybody else. And that that drove him nuts. And you say he was pre-Reagan, but Reagan was the president with whom he overlapped the most. And he used to say that I didn't vote for Reagan in 1980, but I loved him. And he actually uh, drives Carter so crazy in 1980 even though he sort of endorses him, but a very soft endorsement uh, saying that if Carter doesn't live up to his promises to be nicer to Israel in his second term, that he will deserve a place in hell. <laughs> um, and given Carter's uh, proclivities towards Israel, if he had won a second term, uh, he might have had been subject to the Ed Koch curse. Um, so Carter says to Koch, you have done more damage to me than any man in America. And this is a person who endorsed him. So it's not Reagan who did the most damage to, to uh, Carter. Uh, it's Koch who, uh, who Carter sees as, as the biggest problem. And so this urban ethnic coalition was essential in, in electing Reagan, but it also was both the coalition that helped elect Koch and the voice that Koch represented. He's against the excesses of liberalism, even though he himself comes from the, the liberal democratic tradition. And another example of that is on foreign policy. He was a cold warrior. He opposed the Soviets. He hated totalitarianism and he was pro-Israel, which would make him unpopular in today's democratic party. But he was staunch on that issue. And in fact, in 2004, I, I became friends with Ed Koch later in his, his life. 
we barnstormed in Florida together for George W. Bush against John Kerry. And I remember in every single venue, Koch would say the same thing. I'm supporting George W. Bush, even though I don't agree with him on a single domestic issue. He'd say it every single time. He didn't agree with George Bush on, let's say, the, the um, social issues of the day or on spending issues. But he sure agreed with him on fighting the war on terror, protecting America and supporting Israel. Let's talk for a second about Koch's longtime feud. It, actually, I mean, I think so much of his career is made up of feuds. I mean, feuds with, with various people, uh, which is amazing because, you know, politics, you try and build allies and not enemies. But uh, Ed Koch seemed to have revel in the idea of having an opponent, uh, real or imagined, or, you know, he would make the opponent even bigger. But he had a famous feud over decades uh, with Donald Trump. And, uh, Kind of, in in a way, you know, they both represented a very brash, unique New York style. Uh, different, definitely different, uh, different their upbringing. But uh, you know, just talk for you know, tell the audience a little bit and characterize that rivalry that he had or that enmity that he had. I mean, I think that hatred that they had for each other lasted pretty much until you know until Koch died. Probably, probably in Trump's mind, beyond. Yeah, they definitely hated each other, but I think Trump in some ways admired Koch, the way he took over the media, the way he made himself the story. And Maggie Haberman, in her book on Trump, claims that Trump modeled himself in many ways on Koch. So there was hatred, but also some admiration. I think the thing about Koch, from Koch's perspective on Trump, is that he kind of saw through Trump. He saw that Trump was a BSer who was trying to uh, just... uh, spread his name and and get himself out there. And there was one person who told Koch before meeting with Trump that Trump is going to do this trick where in the middle of the meeting, someone's going to call him and say, and and then Trump's going to pick up the phone and say, oh, not 40 million, 80 million. Tell him that, not a cent more, and then hang up. And Trump did exactly that same thing. Obviously, there was either no one on the other line or maybe it was his secretary. It was a fake call. And Koch just saw that he was a, a BSer and a faker in, in so many ways. And look, that's part, I guess that's part of Trump's charm, if it will. I mean, he's, he's constantly trying to uh, buff himself up. Uh, when he meets people, he tries to flatter them. And, um, and, and Koch just saw through it and had, had no patience for it. And I think Trump knew that Koch saw through it. And that was one of the reasons that, that Trump didn't like him. But, you know, I, I don't know if the two of them took this feud personally uh, so much because both of them were feuders. They liked the fight. They liked the limelight. They liked giving as good as they got. And I think uh, in some ways that um, it wasn't a personal feud so much as it was a political feud that benefited both of them. Where does Ed Koch stand in the pantheon of New York City mayors? Yeah, that's a great question. Uh, You know, it's weird because one of the people he feuded with is Rudy Giuliani, who I think was a great New York mayor, whose reputation has understandably and deservedly plummeted for the way he's acted in the last few years. So um, you know, Giuliani would be on the Pantheon, but I think uh, you know, it's kind of like a Kurt Schilling, a uh, great pitcher, but uh, his later political views have prevented him from getting into the Hall of Fame. So, uh, so I, I think you'd have to talk about Koch, Giuliani, Bloomberg, LaGuardia, uh, I, I think those would, would be among the great mayors that I, I would talk about if I were listing great New York mayors. That's a long gap to go from the 30s to the 70s without a great mayor. But uh, well, but yeah, New York, New York had its problems. Um, <laughs> I, I certainly would put John Lindsay on there. I'd put him on the very bottom of the list, although um, right. Blasio is now fighting Lindsay for uh, for worst uh, mayor in, in historical reputation. And, you know, the jury's still out on, on Adams. 
So, Tevi, uh, I want to close with this, uh, just a little perspective or historical perspective or not necessarily a prediction, but, you know, the debt ceiling, right? We're, we're headed, as some people predict, towards the abyss here with the idea of, okay, the United States might actually default on its debt. And people are assuming that promises made by Speaker Kevin McCarthy to his right flank are going to be to blame because, you know, the, the Democrats are not going to negotiate spending cuts. They only want a clean, what's known as a clean debt ceiling uh, extension. So as a historian and, you know, give us perspective, there have been fights like this before and the brinksmanship has gone to the end. But ultimately, the United States doesn't default. As Mitch McConnell said this week, we will not default. Well, are we, you know, where are we with this? And, you know, how do you size things up? Not asking yeah. for prediction, but how do you size it up? Look, as usual, I am with Mitch McConnell. We will not default. <laughs> that said, the fact that we have $31 trillion in debt is outrageous and significantly problematic. I mean, you mentioned kindly my book earlier, Shall We Wake the President? In, in that book, I said that the single most predictable economic disaster we face is a financial collapse based on our unpaid obligations. It's going to happen someday in the future. I don't think it's going to happen today because I think we'll get through it. But at some point, we need to get hold of this debt. It is outrageous that we have $31 trillion in debt. We are not paying our bills. Nobody could live like this. And I, I think we need to make some adjustments as a society. It does not look like Joe Biden with his I will not negotiate stance is prepared to have those conversations. But I think we're in such dire financial straits that we do need to think about it. And it's got to be, it's going to have to be some kind of bipartisan solution. Uh, Brian Rydell at the uh, Manhattan Institute is very good on this issue. He talks about some of the things are going to have to, I mean, you're going to have to be realistic about what you can do. There are going to be, have to be changes to, let's say some of the entitlement programs that do not affect current recipients or people 55 and older. Uh, you have to give people some runway so that they know that these programs are going to be adjusted in the future. Um, you're also going to have to think about a lot of discretionary spending. Um, interest on the debt is a huge part of it. I mean, when you start to look at it, it's not like you could just get rid of, let's say, you know, an unpopular um, program that you know is a giveaway to unions or something and say we're going to solve the problem. And you know, well, there's a multi-trillion dollar problem. It's going to require some real thought and some serious bipartisan, painful concessions on both sides to make it happen. Yeah, I saw a stat that – I will close with this, but I saw a stat that if you take out defense, which the Republicans aren't willing to cut, and then you take out entitlement programs, which Democrats aren't willing to cut, you'd have to cut the rest of the budget by 85% in order to not raise the debt ceiling. I don't know if that's accurate, but that's a, that's a stat that's floating around. So it's amazing when you think about our you know, massive budget, how much it goes just to those you know kind of two sectors. If you want to – make real changes and really adjust our debt situation. And no one's going to pay back $31 trillion tomorrow, Michael. It's just not possible. You have to, it's a long, but we don't need to, right? We don't need to, we shouldn't have to, but you can't take things off the table and say, I'm not going to look at this. I'm not going to look at that. You've got to really be willing to look everywhere in order to make the strategic adjustments to improve things in the future. And again, nobody should, and nobody is talking about cutting social security for current recipients or people over 55, maybe even over 50, but people who are 20 right now need to know that whether as a result of government policy changes or, or not, Social Security and Medicare will not be there to the same degree in 45 years because they just can't. We can't afford it. And we're headed towards a crisis. So some people are going to have to make some changes. And I don't feel like we're ready to do it at this moment. But we're getting there. OK, I promise this is the last question because I got to I because you I really wanted to ask this when they say we're not going to negotiate. 
and we're not going to sit down and negotiate. Is that Washington speak for we, meaning the principals are not negotiating, but other people are negotiating? No, it's really a ploy to um, make the fact of negotiation the first concession. So if they concede and make a agree to negotiate, then at that point, the Republicans have to make a counter concession. So it's kind of like uh, the Palestinians always say, we're not going to negotiate unless Israel agrees to everything first. Uh, so it's, it's just a way to get more out of the, the conversation. Okay. Well, I, I'm going to go back and let the last, your, your first answer to this speak for itself. As you said, Mitch McConnell said, we will not default. So that's good. That's comforting. Tevi Troy, presidential historian uh, with a new article on Ed Koch, a retrospective 10 years later, uh, and all giving us a whole bunch of perspective on different uh, current events. Thanks for joining us once again. Thanks for having me. Okay. That's it for this week here on Spin Class. Stay tuned for Jew in the City Speaks with Allison Joseph. See you next week.